I remember many, many years ago now standing on a beach in northern France and being thoroughly annoyed uh, with one of my children. Standing on a beach north of France and being annoyed with one of my kids. I don't know where the rest of the family were at this time, maybe away buying ice cream or something like that. But at this point, it was just myself and one of my young daughters, and I was annoyed with her, but it turns out it was a complete and utter misunderstanding. See, we had come all this way to France. I had driven all this way to northern France. Here we were in the most beautiful place. And what was my daughter doing? What I thought she was doing was sitting at my feet and playing in the muck. That's what I thought she was doing. We were in this most beautiful location. Can you imagine it? The sun beating down on you. This glorious pebble beach that seemed to stretch for miles. Beautiful blue ocean. And what did I think my daughter was doing? I thought she was sitting at my feet, playing in the dirt and paying no attention whatsoever. Turns out, though, I'd got it absolutely and completely wrong. Because on closer inspection, I found that my daughter wasn't just playing in the dirt. What she was doing was this. She was inspecting one particular pebble that she had picked up from the beach. And I think everyone in here, we all know how beautiful these little pebbles are can be on a beach, don't we? Especially if the sun's out shining on it. Pebbles can be multicolored, can't they? Shiny and smooth. And so I couldn't grumble, could I? I couldn't complain because essentially, myself, my daughter, we were doing exactly the same thing. What were we both doing? We were inspecting the beauty, appreciating the beauty around us. Okay, I was taking this kind of wide-angled approach, wasn't I? I was soaking up the whole vista, but my daughter was appreciating beauty as well, wasn't she? She had just zeroed in on one particular aspect of the scene. Well, look at us in here. What's true of most of us, if not all of us, we are familiar with what happens in the life of a church. We know what happens here. We know that very often uh, what a preacher does is a preacher takes a big chunk of scripture to look at in a sermon. That's how we roll, isn't it? Very often we will stand up and we will take a whole chapter of God's word and we will look at it in preaching. Well, that is not what I want us to do today. What I want us to do this morning is actually to follow after my daughter today. And what I want us to do is to zero in on one particular aspect of the scene, the passion scene. Now, this little detail that we're going to look at is an important detail. It is a detail that is recorded in each of the three synoptic gospels. So hopefully right now you're wondering, okay, Andy, what is the detail we're going to look at? Well, this morning, just now, I want us, you and I, to linger on the fact that it was dark at Golgotha. The fact that as our Savior hung on the cross, the sun was not beating down upon him the whole time. Nor was it just cloudy or gloomy. I want you and I to consider the fact that it was pitch black at the cross. 
Now, the intention uh, just now and this morning is really for us to think about the meaning of this darkness, for, for you and I to think about, well, wait a minute, what did that darkness symbolize? What does it teach us about Christ and the cross? And in a moment or two, we will predictably uh, look at three truths about that, the meaning of this darkness, what it tells us about Golgotha. But before we do that, I do think we should probably, um, just to get the ball rolling, we should consider some practicalities. So I'm going to ask you to have your Bibles open at Mark 15. And then, yeah, just, just to get started with these things, can we make a few observations about this darkness, this blackness at the cross? Just a few practical, logistical observations to get the ball rolling. <coughs> so if you have it there, first is this. Let's observe that it was dark at the cross when, when light should have been at its brightest. Can I say that again to make sure we have it? It was dark at the cross when light should have been at its brightest. Can you look at verse 33 with me? Let's, let's look at this. Now, what do we have? What's the detail here? So, Mark tells us that when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness, and then it goes on to say, until the ninth hour. Now, if, uh, if you know your Jewish calendar... And I'm guessing there might be some people in here who do indeed know their Jewish calendar. If you know your Jewish calendar, you know what we're being taught there by Mark. And what we're being told is that this darkness fell at midday. Now, now, please listen to this and put it in your back pocket for later on in the sermon. We are being taught that the darkness fell, listen, at noon. Now, remember, at noon. But, but contemplate just now what that tells you. Hey, think about that. Just when the Middle, Middle Eastern sun should have been at its highest point in the sky. Just, this, just at the point when, when light should have been bl blinding, heat and, and intense, what happens? Suddenly, darkness falls. Darkness falls. So that's the first observation. The second observation is this, that most likely, I think it was dark in Israel or dark in Judea alone. Say that again, that most likely it was dark in Judea alone. Would you read on with me in the text? Do you notice what Mark says? Mark tells us that this darkness was over. Now, what's his geographical reference? Do you see it there? It was darkness over the whole land. And I reckon uh, probably you know what a lot of people have said about this. So some people would say that that means that at the cross, because of the cross, suddenly the whole earth was enveloped in darkness. You know, the whole of the globe was cast into gloom. Maybe, maybe, I don't think it is. Because the Greek word that we're using there, it can refer to the whole of the earth, the whole globe, but it can also refer to an immediate area. So I'm, I'm going to stand with John Calvin up the front here, because John Calvin says this, I like this. He says, while the, sh the sun shone elsewhere, Judea alone was plunged into shadow. Why? To make this moment more notable. 
So you with me thus far? We're, we're making just some initial observations about this darkness. And it became dark when it should have been as brightest and, and most likely just in Judea alone. Look, the last of, of these initial observations is, is that this was dark, or it became dark by supernatural means, by supernatural means. Because I find it quite frustrating uh, when you, you begin to, to pick away and, and read about this darkness and, and you read scholarship and the commentaries and so forth about darkness. Because what what people tend to do is they get distracted by what caused the darkness. So you read lots of, in particular, modern scholarship, and everyone's obsessed with dust storms. <laughs> you know, was that a dust storm that, that caused this darkness? Was it was it an eclipse that caused this darkness? Well, not that I think it matters all that much. But I'm going to suggest it was neither of those things, because in Luke's account, so not Mark, but in Luke's account, Luke seems to suggest that there was this otherworldly intensity to this darkness. I'll, I'll read you what Luke says. Now, listen carefully. Luke says that at Calvary, listen, the sun's light entirely failed. The light all of a sudden failed. Now, I, I don't think that, that a dust storm particularly causes that sort of effect. You, you see what we're dealing with here, do you? In Mark 15, 33, this was an entirely supernatural event. This was the hand of God. And because of that, I wonder if you would agree with this, that because it's the hand of God, does that not make this darkness? Would it not have made it all the more terrifying? Don't you think? Can you imagine the farmer in Judea? You imagine out in his field after a morning's labor, you know, that the heat starts, so he's on his way home to get a bite to eat, and then suddenly he's engulfed with blackness. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Pontius Pilate in his mansion, and he is battling his conscience all of a sudden darkness falls or would you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ your savior your king your friend upon that cross imagine the situation not just being mocked not just being ridiculed but the Lord Jesus having those voices of derision come at him fly at him rage at him and all through the blackness all through the darkness it's something isn't it so we have the, the ball rolling. We, we make some just observations about these things. Let's get to the, the good stuff in a sense. Let's get to the meaning, the symbolism of this event. And I suppose what we're trying to do just now is addressing the question, why? 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 If this is the divine hand, why does darkness fall at Golgotha? What is God showing us? I want to suggest three briefer answers to, to that question. So the first is this. Each will begin with S. If you're taking notes, it makes it easier. This darkness points us to the significance of the cross. The significance of the cross. I don't know if I told you this before, but my wife, Catherine, has a favorite film. And the favorite film is the 2004 film, The Day After Tomorrow. I wonder if some of you have heard of that. Some of you may have seen that film, The Day After Tomorrow. Uh, it's your usual sort of apocalyptic thriller. 
where, what's the storyline, where uh, global warming is causing natural disasters that are threatening the end of the world. It's a sophisticated film, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's good, but it's rubbish, if you know what I mean. Um, but there is a part in this film that I think is key or helpful for us just now. So now get this, come with me into the film. At one point, ready for it? At one point, scientists are desperate to show the authorities, they're desperate to show the government that unique rises in sea temperature are going to cause dramatic knock-on effects, okay? So the scientists, we have to show the authorities, we have to show the government. So what do the scientists do? You ready for it? What the scientists do is they break into the Pentagon. <laughs> As you do, they break into the Pentagon and they put a laptop before the, the government, the authorities. Now, wait. On this laptop, in amongst all of the other data, they have these unique rises in sea temperatures, and they have them flashing on the screen on this laptop, on and off. So you've got all this data, right? You can picture all this data, but the unique rises in sea temperature, the dangerous on and off, on and off. You know, the, the scientists are saying, look, look at this, this is, this is unique. This is an unprecedented event. And perhaps you're ahead of me, are you? You're not wondering, why is he talking about this film? You can see, can't you, that that is exactly the sort of thing that is happening at Calvary. That in order, think of it, that in order to alert the world to the uniqueness of this moment, that in order to, to point humanity to the unprecedented nature of Jesus' death, what's happening at Golgotha? The light is not going on and off and on and off and on and off. But light has been completely removed. Now, we have to be ever so careful at this moment and because uh, some poets, a number of poets throughout history, they've, they've really loved this idea, the idea of uh, nature alerting humanity. And so what the poets have done is they've attributed this event to nature herself. Can you follow the idea? As though Mother Nature at Calvary has withdrawn her light. But what do you know? What do I know? What have we just established? This isn't Mother Nature. This is the, the hand of the Father. This is the hand of God. But doesn't that make this all the more startling for you and me? Now, listen to me. Consider this. That such is the Father's concern that humanity would consider the cross, what has God done? Isn't it almost as though God has snatched the sun from the sky? Isn't that what it seems like? So concerned is God that humanity would linger long in Calvary and consider the death of his son. It's as though God has absolutely disrupted the cosmos there. Think about it. The just as the Father has marked... Jesus' unique birth with a bright star. What does the Father do now? The Father marks Jesus' unique death with a blackened sun. And why does he do it? All to alert humanity, all to point humanity to there, to the cross, to this death. And so I ask you, in here, are you yet to be following Jesus Christ? 
Are you yet to have your faith in him? Consider that what we are seeing this morning only adds weight to the conclusion that Paul came to in Romans chapter one. What's that conclusion? We are without excuse, you and I, aren't we? Not only has God put knowledge of him in our very hearts, deep down, not only is that true, but consider what he's done, that in order that we might look and understand the importance of his son's death, God has even extinguished light at the cross. What's the first S? The darkness shows us the significance of this moment. Second S, the darkness at Golgotha points us to the sorrow of the cross. We, we cover such a wide theological spectrum in this room, don't we? A really wide theological spectrum. It's vast. <laughs> And, and because of that, um, I know that we probably, most of us have differing ideas about what the end of the world is going to look like, what, what's going to happen at the end of time. We probably all do have different ideas about what that might look like. Hopefully, though, if I were to talk to you just now about the last days, the last days, and that phrase, and that idea, hopefully, we would all have an understanding biblically about what, at least what time period we are talking about and dealing with about according to scripture. What's the last days? The last days biblically are that time from Christ's first coming until his second coming. So we live in the last days, don't we? This time from, from the cross, if you like, to the consummation. Well, the reason that I mention that to you is that there is a, a special section of the Old Testament that very much deals with the last days. And it's a section of scripture that should color our understanding of this darkness that falls at Golgotha. So I'm gonna ask you to do something that I don't very often ask you to do, I don't think. And I'm gonna ask you to turn to this section of the Old Testament with me just for a moment or two. So if you've got your Bible there, if you would look up, this will test your knowledge of where the books of the Bible are, uh, look up Amos. Uh, chapter 8, if you would. Amos chapter 8. Um, I think if you're using a church Bible, I can help you. So it's on page 769, I think it was. That's a church Bible. If you've got a phone, the phone will help you. And if you're using your own Bible, you're on your own. <laughs> so as you, as you look up Amos uh, chapter 8, as I hear the pages rustle, which is a good thing, let me tell you what you're going to find. Now, it's an Old Testament prophecy, so we, let's use that old idea of a mountain range, the one that we've all heard before. Yes, you know it? Let's see. You're looking at a mountain range from afar. Don't the mountains look like they're side by side? Don't they from afar? But then you approach the mountain range. What do you realize? you realize there's great depth there. There's going to be miles between those mountains that looked like they were side by side. Well, see this prophecy you've now got at your fingertips. Now, ultimately, this prophecy has the final day of judgment in view. Does everyone have that? So ultimately, Amos is looking ahead to the final day, the, the last judgment, if you want. That's the, that's the last mountain 
What I want to suggest to you just now, which is ever so important, is that Amos also in Amos 8 has one eye to the cross of Jesus Christ. And I think you will see that if you look at verses 9 and 10. I wonder if we can help you out. Amos 8, verse 9 and 10. Now, have a look here with me. So Amos speaks about a day of mourning. That's crucial. So it's a day of grief. Now, look what he says. Now, you can take certain things out of your back pocket now, can you? So it's a day, this day of mourning, when when not only will the earth be darkened when it's supposed to be bright, what's the time reference? Amos is looking ahead to a, a, a moment when the earth will go dark at noon. So you're with me, aren't you? That, that Amos is looking ahead. Golgotha is in view. Now, what have we said? We've said this is a day of mourning. This is a day of grief. So I think the question that arises, the one that we have to wrestle with this morning, is, well, then, if you're looking to Golgotha, who is it that's grieving? Who is it that's mourning in this darkness? And I want to say this, and I want you to listen to it, and I do want you to chew it over. Please hear it. That what we see at the cross really is the mourning of Almighty God. That the blackness, the darkness, that it speaks to the Father's grief. And it's his grief over his only begotten Son. I wonder how that lands. Now, does it sound slightly controversial to some of you? After all, our confession of faith, it says that God is without passions. So the idea that nothing in all of creation can elicit a sort of unexpected emotional response from God. But that isn't what we're seeing here. That isn't what happened at the cross. What happened there? What happened was a thoroughly ordained time of grieving for the Father, wasn't it? One anticipated from before the dawn of time. See, at Calvary, God wasn't suddenly surprised and then filled with sorrow. He wasn't sideswiped by pain. This darkness points you to the Father's ordained grief over the Son that he loves so dear. That recently... Departed theologian Donald MacLeod. He said this about the darkness. He said, Here is in the darkness a sorrow keenly felt in heaven. Here in the darkness, God is the chief sufferer. And if you doubt it, friend, just look at the end of verse 10 in Amos 8. Look at that. On this day when the sun is darkened at noon, how is the morning described? It is like that for an only son. Isn't it? And we so often in the Christian life, we doubt that God loves us. Isn't that true of you? Even perhaps just now, there is doubt that God really loves you. And what, what do you see in this? Don't you see in the darkness he loves you? Don't you, don't you see here that, 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 that 
He is concerned, so devoted to you, so committed to your salvation that what has he done? God himself has willingly undergone sorrow and all in the darkness and all for you, all to claim you for his own. So we see significance and we see sorrow. And then the last thing, the darkness here, it points us to the sin bearing of the cross. The sin bearing of the cross. Uh, I think I said this recently, but uh, I know that you know your, your Bibles well. I know that we, we, we read our Bibles, you read your Bible. So what I'm going to say next, perhaps, the first part of it, will, will not be of surprise to you in, in any way. I'm going to suggest this, and it won't be surprising. I'm going to suggest that the darkness of, of Calvary, it suggests also the anger of our God. That doesn't surprise you, does it? The Christian familiar with your Bible. You know that throughout the scriptures, we see that same thing, don't we? Don't we? We see darkness in the Bible very often associated with judgment of God, don't we? And wrath of God and anger of God. Got it in Deuteronomy and Micah and Joel, Zephaniah. Got it in all manner of places. You see that, yes. Yeah. That's not surprising. What perhaps might be surprising for at least some in here today is upon whom I'm going to suggest that God's anger here at Calvary is poured out. You see, throughout the centuries, many even really good and reliable scholars, even they have said this. They have said that the darkness at the cross shows God's anger with man. Time and time again, we can read that. You get the idea, don't you? The darkness falls at Golgotha uh, because it indicates God's kind of turning away and he's turning away in abhorrence of what humanity is doing there at Golgotha to his son. You see the idea? God angry with men. That, that is not what's happening. Just consider, if you would, I ask you, our earlier reading the one that Will started off with. Can you remember what it was? Do you remember we read together Exodus chapter 10? Now, I think you all know that that story better than I know it, better than the back of your hands, don't you? In Exodus, what's happening? God there, listen, he is acting in judgment over Egypt, isn't he? Before the Exodus. He's acting in righteous wrath. And did you notice what happened in Exodus chapter 10? What does God do? Listen carefully. God sent a darkness over the Egyptians. Why? As a sign of the curse upon the land. Can I say that again? Exodus 10, God sends a darkness as a sign of curse and the curse of the land. I doubt there's anybody in this room who doesn't see how that relates to what we're dealing with at Golgotha. You can see it. I will distill it down and ask you this. What is the primary reason that darkness fell at Calvary? The primary reason that what was true in the first Passover is true also at the last Passover. That this darkness at Calvary was a sign of divine wrath upon the cursed. And who was that? 
but the Son of God himself. That at Calvary, God was not just angry with the Jews, was he? God was not just angry and meeting out wrath upon the Romans, that their God was acting in judgment over his only begotten, only beloved son, that there, as you peer into the darkness, into the gloom and the blackness at Calvary, what do you see but the pristine, holy son of God becoming cursed and cursed for, for you and cursed for me. Now, you, 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 I think, know what we're like in our circles. What we do is we think about that outpouring of wrath very often only from the Father's perspective, don't we? Isn't that what we do so often? We think about it. Oh, the Father's justice had to be satisfied. But do you know what you're about to do? You're about to go to the table of the Lord. So remember his death. So as you do that, I would ask you, implore you to consider this outpouring of wrath and consider it from Jesus' perspective. What did he endure for you? Listen, Christ Jesus experienced for you the very outer darkness of hell itself for you. The Lord Jesus Christ, for the first time in his experience, he knew something of a separation from the God in whom there is no darkness at all. Really, what this darkness is for us is a picture and it's an illustration that God gives of what we cry. It is a visual picture of the despair, the dereliction that Jesus Christ knew on that cross, that dereliction that he verbalized as he cried out what? He goes on to cry out, my God. God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness engulfed the land. It engulfed Judea because of the greatest mystery, the greatest paradox of them all. Why was it dark? Because God the Father was punishing the Son that he loved so much and all for us. So, so I end by addressing, as we do on occasion, the two groups of people that we have at St. Peter's. <laughs> two groups. First of all, I close by speaking to you if you are a Christian. <laughs> so in a moment, you're going to come to the table aren't you? And you're going to linger on this, aren't you? And you're going to consider the, the depths of Jesus' death. But I am going to ask you to do that with just gratitude in your heart and with joy. All for this one reason. All for the reason. Ready? What happened at the ninth hour? Hallelujah and praise God. Light returned. Don't you see what that means? God's blackness, the darkness of his judgment on your sin has ended. Light has returned. Don't you see the implication? You are cleansed. You are forgiven. The light returned. The darkness of his wrath over you has been lifted. But then to the other group, for those who do not know, this morning, the Lord Jesus Christ. I do as I am called to do in Scripture, and I plead with you. See, you must, you must understand 
that if you are outside of Jesus Christ, and if you are today in rebellion against God, this curse that is due to sin, where is it? It is still upon your shoulders. And if you are outside of Christ, you are due to face the consequences of that curse in death. And not, hear this, not for three hours, but for all eternity. And what has Jesus Christ done in God's free grace by his life, death, and resurrection? He's assured you of salvation. He's offering you salvation, safety from that, if you will only come to him. Will you not do that this morning? And be able to say with all of the church, of Jesus Christ throughout the ages, this, that light shines in the darkness. And the darkness, hallelujah, it has not overcome it. Let's bow our heads and let's pray.